Jesus' name. Amen. Our, our scripture reading today comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 75. Luke chapter 1, 67 to 75. And his father, Zacharias, was, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to, be, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. May God richly bless the reading of his word. And for those who are of the age to go to King's Kids, you can go to your class now. And for those who'd like to hear the sermon translated into Spanish, you can uh, dial in to the, to the information that's in your bulletins. All right, welcome everyone again, and welcome to those that are joining us online. We are going to be uh, in Nehemiah, so if you have your Bibles, you could turn there. And as you notice, we are now reading from the New Testament with our scripture every, uh, before we get started. We were doing the Old Testament for uh, almost a couple of years, and the reason why is because we were teaching through the New Testament, so we would do an Old Testament passage. Excuse me. So now that we're in the Old Testament... Each week, we will be doing a New Testament passage. Now, I'm telling you that because what's the uniqueness about that passage that is read every uh, morning here before we get into the sermon? There's some sort of tie-in, so that's what you want to listen for. Sometimes it's not like profound and so obvious, but as we go through the sermon, um, I will usually refer back to that. So... With that said, we are in Nehemiah chapter 1. We are going to be in verses 5 to 11, but I've included up on the board here, up on the monitors, uh, the first four verses. So that way we could sort of go through uh, a quick review and then get right into 5 to uh, 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 11. So in the first verse, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month Kislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And so for those of you that have been following us along, we are right at the end of the historical books of the Old Testament. And it's a little weird because these books are sort of before all the other big prophets and everything like that in the actual book, the Bible. But really where we're at right now is uh, we're around um, 445 B.C. And uh, we have some of the prophets that spoke during this time. But then after that, there's that intertestamental period of nothingness 
basically, uh, as it relates to the word of God, scripture, prophecy, things like that. The apocryphal books and so, so forth were filling in there, but they're not inspired. And then we have Jesus coming uh, in the gospels and, and that uh, so forth. So a couple of quick things that I forgot to mention last week. Kislev is actually the ninth month uh, in the Hebrew calendar, and that matches with our November or December. <clears throat> and um, we're going to see later uh, in chapter two that uh, right before he goes and sits before uh, or goes before King Artaxerxes to ask for permission to go rebuild the, uh, the walls, uh, that's in the month of Nisan, not to be confused with the month of Toyota. <laughs> Couldn't resist. Now, that's compared to our March and April. So Nehemiah, the, what I'm, why I'm stopping here is because what we're about to read is a prayer that Nehemiah prayed. But he didn't go before uh, King Artaxerxes for four months after he made this prayer. So the, uh, what we're looking at here is four months of weeping and praying, four months of, of fasting, Obviously, not four months of eating nothing, but he was really seeking the Lord. Now, what was our message from last week? God has to work in us before he will work through us. God has to work in us before he will send us out to do this work. And and the more important the work, usually the more important the work that has to happen inside of us. Oftentimes we have to be broken. And that's what we talked about last week. Nehemiah was a broken man. Over what? He was broken over his people. He was broken over his land. But most importantly, he was broken because this certain situation that they were in was because of their own sin against the God that he loved. So he loved the Lord. He was broken for God. And with that said, he now goes into this prayer. So verse five, I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now day and night for those four months on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants. What was he doing? Confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. Verse seven, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statues, nor the ordinances, which you commanded your servant Moses. Verse 8, remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. And that's what recently had happened. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of heaven, I will gather them together from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. So Nehemiah is basically repeating scripture back to God in his prayer. Verse 10, they are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant 
and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name. And make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. So <clears throat> apparently there was some gap. Maybe he was going before the king that day and that didn't happen. He didn't say it. He continued to pray. But verse 2 starts out, and it came about. You don't have this up there. It came about in the month Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. So he was the, the cupbearer for the king. <clears throat> he was the great taste tester. Uh, he was the one that chose the wine for the king. He was the one that uh, sat right by. He was a, very, a man of influence, and he was living in the Sosa, which was uh, you know, the capital, their, their sort of uh, vacation land where they used to go. The Persian kings would go to this place uh, during the winter months to stay warm. Like we would say, let's go down to Florida for the winter months and come up here to New Jersey for the summer months. And so Nehemiah was a very uh, admired man to be able to have <clears throat> this position. So what I want to do today, <clears throat> there's so much stuff here, so many different places that we can go. Now, you're going to see once we get into chapter two of Nehemiah, this book really takes off and it gets it's like a plays like a movie. It's really interesting. But there's nothing I don't think as rich uh, and as potent as for our souls as this first chapter of Nehemiah for many different reasons. One of which <clears throat> it because it really gives us a good model of prayer when we want to go to God for prayer and we read this passage, we can really see. The, the scripture, the uh, sincerity of this man, his passion and all those things. And I want to talk about that. But first, I want to camp out in this chapter. We may be here for one or two weeks because I want to talk about why Nehemiah prayed this prayer. And, the, and, and on top of that, how he prayed the prayer. So we're really going to be looking at content of the prayer a little bit today. But more importantly, we're going to look at context because why is it so important to God? <clears throat> why is it so important to God to put this on Nehemiah's heart in such a heavy way to want to be able to go before the king? Who, If you go before the king and you say something that's, you say something dumb-dumb or something like that, you could be killed right away, immediately. You remember in Esther, right, where the king had to put his scepter down. And if he didn't, you walk in the presence of the king and the king doesn't put the scepter down the guards come and you're done. <clears throat> and even Esther, his wife, was afraid to do that. So Nehemiah, how much more probably was he sitting there saying, well, what's he going to think? Am I starting a rebellion? You know, what if he has heard about? So this was not just some easy task that God is putting him to do. But it is very important to God. But why is the big question? <clears throat> One of the most universally recognized signs of greeting or even agreement in our day is the handshake. Now with COVID, we learned really all different cool fist bumps. Um, we have the elbow bumps, you know, the foot and ankle bumps and all that uh, nonsense. But uh, in essence, in reality, the hand, there's nothing like a warm, firm handshake. And that is, uh, dates back to the early fifth century BC in Greece where it was a symbol of peace, but it also showed that neither person was carrying a weapon because of the way that they dressed. And so in your right hand, if you shook with your right or your left hand, they would be able to look and see what did he have under his cloak. 
This actually evolved into an arm grab. You know, if you see, you, you, you grab the forearm and you can have varieties of, uh, of that. That came in the Roman era, involved grabbing each other's forearms to check that neither man had a knife uh, under his sleeve. Some say the shaking gesture of the handshake started in medieval Europe so they could shake away any loose knives or weapons in the sleeve of that person in case he was trying to hide it. But eventually the handshake evolved into a symbol of good faith. When making an oath or promise, two people clasped hands. They showed that their word was a sacred bond. In some states today, a handshake can even be a formal agreement and it could be binding. And I wouldn't recommend that, um, to, to have a binding agreement by just a handshake. Um, however, it can be an agreement that can be expressed quickly. And, and some of the old timers will say, and we didn't ever needed contracts back in the day. We would shake our hand, and that word, and that right there was our bond. <clears throat> now, the God of the Bible, on the other hand, when making agreements, he is not a handshake type of person. He not only puts his contracts in writing, but he also acts out his agreements. He writes them out. He, he, he seals his agreements and his contracts, oftentimes with blood. The Bible calls this type of contract or an agreement a covenant. We've all heard the word. We've all seen it in scripture. But the covenant, I believe, is one of the biggest misconceived concept in all of scripture. And it's like one of the biggest uh, uh, misconceived um, as it relates to its influence in scripture. It's the most underrated doc uh, doctrine, I guess you could say, if you were to ask me. <clears throat> now, if a handshake is an expression of an agreement with us, a covenant by God is not only an expression of that agreement that he's making, but it's also a guarantee that that agreement, that that covenant will be fulfilled. That's the type of God we have. Now, we have many covenants in, in, the, in the Bible and in theology. However, the very first and primary covenant that God made with man was the covenant that he made with his people. Some people say it started in the Garden of Eden right after the fall, that God promised that the serpent's head would be crushed by the seed, capital S, seed of the woman, which is an implication or a promise by God. To God, a promise and a covenant can pretty much be used interchangeably. However, a covenant is a little bit more technical, you see, God promised to save his people and never leave them nor forsake them, regardless of what they got themselves into. And he made a visible covenant, a written covenant with them that guaranteed that that would happen. <clears throat> and because God takes seriously his covenants, more than serious, they're extremely serious to God we can know that they will always come to pass. So in Nehemiah 5 to 11, we see Nehemiah give a passionate prayer of praise. You saw that? I beseech you, O God of heaven. 
we see repentance. Lord, forgive me, forgive my fathers, forgive all of us, Lord. He, he, He stood up for the whole nation of Israel all the way back to the time of Moses. He repented. And he also showed faith by saying, please give me favor upon this man when I stand before him. But this also, this prayer to me, which glares to it and shows it, glares out and shows and shines more than everything and anything was that Nehemiah was a man of the covenant. He was a man who knew about the covenant. He knew the covenant theme within the word of God because he went and talked it right back to God. He knew the covenant language. And he knew the consequences of breaking the covenant. And this is what I believe fueled him, gave him the boldness to do what he did, was he knew that he was dealing with God and God's promises that were made previously. And so he said, I am going to let nothing deter me because these are promises that God made to our fathers that I've learned about my whole life through rumors through maybe reading some part, uh, pieces of scripture here and there that were available. But he knew that God was going to do something about the exile that they were in. He knew it was going to be not just the temple rebuilt. He knew the walls were going to be rebuilt. He knew that Israel was going to become a nation again, that God would bring them back. And he, wherever he scattered them from, he's going to bring them back. And he also knew that there was something even bigger coming, that all of this was pointing to some sort of king, some sort of Messiah that was going to come and be the one true representation of God himself. Because as as we're going to read about in Malachi, God himself promised that he would come and return to his temple. So today I want to take a quick look at how these three aspects of his covenantal prayer can be applied to our relationship with Christ. The covenant theme, the covenant language, and the consequences of breaking this covenant. And see whether God expects from what he expected from the people of Israel back then. Does he still expect the same thing from us today? So first things first, Nehemiah knew the covenant theme. He says it right here in verse 5. I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant. Goes right to that first. (laughs) Walking right in and saying, God, you're a God that preserves the covenant. That's why I'm here. And loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. And then he goes even more into, into this. Uh, uh, he says, we have acted in verse seven, corruptly against your commandments, your statues, which you commanded your servant, who? Moses, again, the covenant. Because we have the Mosaic covenant, okay? We have the Davidic covenant. We have before that the Noahic covenant. But in, and before even that, we have the <clears throat> Abrahamic, co- or I'm sorry, the covenant in the, um, in the uh, Garden of Eden, But then in there, between this Noahic covenant and all the other covenants, we have God raise up Abraham. 
and says that through your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Again, seed. And so the Abrahamic covenant covenant that God would bring forth somebody, something that's going to, a seed that's going to permeate through the whole world and, and bless every nation and every family, that covenant is the underlying covenant through everything. So you don't have to worry how all this stuff pieces together. The Bible is, a, is really can be looked at as just a book of the covenant of grace that God is going to come and save his people and obviously at the same time use and form his people. The covenant occurs 316 times in scripture. It appears throughout all of scripture. Its theme is in every single book of scripture And um, the covenant that God promised, he said that he would save us, but most important, and I want you to remember this because this will go with the application, he doesn't just save us, but he keeps us until the very end. He keeps you not just until the end of your life, but he keeps you in his presence after that. And he keeps you in the resurrection when the final resurrection comes and he raises your body up. He keeps you from there into all eternity. You are his. Why? Because God is a covenant God. Everything that flows out of God is not an arbitrary thing that God came up with. The law. Don't steal. That's not something God just arbitrarily came up with. Don't steal is there because God is not a thief. His character is not that of thievery. Same with adultery. God is not an adulterer. God is not a fornicator. God is not and go down the line. Everything in this Bible that says do not do, it's not because God wants to put a a boundary on you. It's because it's an expression of his character. He wants you to be one with him. He wants you to have joy. He wants you to follow in his commandments because that's part of the whole plan to, to, to in part of the whole redemptive plan is to do that. So why am I saying this? Covenant is an expression of who God is. It's his character. We say that about people all the time. Well, yeah, he's a, you know, he's a perfectionist or he's a completionist. Or, you know, he's like, he has to dot every I, every T, all that stuff. And that could become obsessive and compulsive and all that stuff, right? Well, God is a God of order. And God is a God of promise and completion. And the way that God does these things, he does it according to his character and according to how he had to bring forth the Messiah through the image of what was in heaven, okay? Because the temple and all these things that we see here in the Old Testament, they're just shadows of what's going on in heaven that God put down here on earth so that he could cover that seed and protect that line until the Messiah comes. And he is ultimately heaven on earth is Jesus. So once Jesus comes, we don't need all of that stuff. Because it's every single promise of God in Jesus Christ is yes and amen. Meaning they're all point to Christ. And they have their ultimate fulfillment in him. 
We see this expectation of the covenant in the New Testament. That's why uh, Kevin read uh, that passage. Because we have Mary um, in her Magnificat. She said what? She refers to the covenant that God made to the fathers and the faithfulness. Same with Simeon. They were all waiting on the covenant God. As he spoke from the mouth of his holy prophets from old, verse 71 of Luke chapter 1. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy towards our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Jesus is the answer to that covenant. <clears throat> Romans eleven twenty-seven. 27. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. I, and in Hebrews 8 and 10, I'll put my laws into their minds. I'll write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is fulfilled in Christ. God will never forget his covenant with his people. Now you may say, well, what does that have to do with me, Pat? Are you trying to say we have to go and follow these rules or do the law or do those other things? No, that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that there's no difference of the covenant that God made with Israel in the Old Testament. Covenant that he made with them and said, you guys are messing up and you guys should be cast away forever. I'm going to punish. I'm going to discipline. And then, but I'm never going to forget the covenant that I made with you. That's what God is saying to you right now. You see, when you come to Jesus Christ, you don't have to go through the covenant of circumcision. You don't have to follow all of the sacrificial laws. You don't have to follow all of the ceremonial laws. You don't have to do all that. That's what the people of Israel did to identify them as the people of God. We're covenant keepers. We're doing what God said. We're going to the temple. We're doing all we can do. That's when you see in the Old Testament, he was a righteous man who followed the Lord. This doesn't mean he was sinless. It means he did the things that God told him to do. When he sinned, he went to the temple. When he sinned, he went and asked for confession. He paid his He did all those things. That was the identity marker. But for us right now, because Jesus fulfills all those aspects of the covenant, our identity marker, as in the covenant, is when you say, I believe by faith that Jesus Christ died on the cross. He was fully God. And fully man, he fully took my sin. He absorbed the wrath and justice of God for me. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father in glory and authority. If you confess that with your mouth and you believe that in your heart, you will be saved, yes. But you are now part of God's people. You are now part of the covenant. And we have signs and symbols of that we're a part of that, like baptism. Okay, baptism shows people, everybody says, well, everybody thinks of baptism just about the evidence of salvation. And it could be. But ultimately, when you get baptized, you're saying, I am now part of the people of God. I am now part of the covenant that God made with his people. So there's not a different covenant in that sense. You're still part of that covenant of grace. As John the Baptist says, God can raise from these stones children of Abraham. And all those that are of Abraham's lineage are not necessarily of Israel or of Abraham. 
It comes by faith in Jesus Christ. So the covenant, okay, that's God's promise. And the faith is what he gives us to have the confidence to go out and to step out into faith. This is faithfulness. That's what Jesus was. He was the faithful. He was the one and only faithful one. But God now wants us to imitate him. And because we're his children, because we're in his covenant, now we can step out in faith like Nehemiah is about to do. And we could step into his presence and pray. We could step into his throne room and meet with him and commune with him. We can call him father. We can call Jesus brother. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. We can go out now knowing we are covered. And that's what God is calling us to do as his people is to be little Nehemiahs going out there and doing the same thing. So have that confidence knowing you're in the covenant and God will never leave you nor forsake you. Have that that assurance of your salvation. Don't beat yourself up. Don't sin. Stop sinning. (laughs) Turn from your sin. Turn from what you know is wrong. It's not pleasing to God. And then trust the Lord because you are covered by that new blood of that new covenant that is always going to be there. And it's there perpetually for us. And so Nehemiah knew this covenant theme as he was praying this prayer. He knew the covenant language. This is point number two. What's the covenant language? English. No. Whatever you speak. But the true covenant language is prayer, regardless of what language you speak. I'd love for you, not not now, but you write this if you're taking notes. Look at Daniel 9. Uh, Look at uh, Solomon's prayer, which I believe is in um, uh, 2 Kings 7, I believe. His prayer of uh, committing the, uh, I should have had that down. I just added this in my notes. What is it? 2 Chronicles 7. Thanks, uh, Kevin. And again, I mentioned it before. Look at Mary's Magnificat. All of these prayers are so similar. They have so much of the similar language. I'll just read one to you. Daniel 3, 9, 3 to 6. I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer, supplications, with fasting, with sackcloth, with ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned. We've committed iniquity. We've acted uh, w- wickedly. We've rebelled. That's Daniel. Sound familiar? If you've read Nehemiah 1 and you listen, it's so much very equal, pound for pound. And he goes on the same way. <clears throat> the one I had here is First Kings 8. When Solomon stood before the Lord of the altar in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, he spread out his hands towards heaven. He said, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. See, their covenant language here is prayer. But you see an honor and you see an exaltation of who God is of who his character is. He's a God of all creation. He's the God of heaven and earth, but he's the covenant God 
who keeps his love, he who continues over and over to continue to show us love and kindness to those who love him and keep his commandments. Keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You see, that's a scary place to step. To say, I am going to do everything I can to walk with God before, before God with all my heart. We can't, it's hard to say that and do that because we're, we're wimps. As soon as we fail, we say, ah, I knew I couldn't do it. But God says, no, don't be wimpy. Just continue to walk. I got this for you. I just want your eyes fixed on me, your heart fixed on me. Yes, you, you stumble, turn from your sin. Keep walking. I got it planned for you. Keep going. Keep moving. I know it's hard. It's been uphill for a long time. It's going to be going downhill. It's, you're going to be drifting right down. Keep going. Keep moving. You see, Nehemiah was, the, was a man of the word of God. He knew all of these. How did he know all this stuff? Well, yeah, the spirit was moving through him, but he also had the parchments. He also had the writings and he studied them and he prayed this back to the Lord. That's what we have to do. See, I can go off on a whole thing on prayer right now, just on that. We're going to, that's what we're going to do next week. We're going to talk about prayer and about more practical stuff, right? But this is the language that God wants us to use. He wants us to come to him. He wants us to search the scriptures. He wants us to take the, his words and say them back to him. God loves that. I love it when my kids give, hey, dad, remember, my dad always said, I love that. Makes me feel cool, right? Makes me feel like I'm making an impact, right? When our children do that. How much more the living God, when we memorize and we study his word, the fighter verses are so cool. If you've missed out on them, Tuesday night, that's what we use for the, uh, the prayer meeting. But get the fighter verse app and start to memorize scripture, memorize the promises of God. And bam, you'll need it. And you know what? You'll say, wow, Lord, God of heaven, I just beseech you, Lord, as Nehemiah did, as Solomon did. Lord, keep your, you, you're a covenant keeping God. I worship you. I thank you. And you present your supplications before him. And of course, number three, God knew the covenant-breaking consequences and the promises of forgiveness as well. That would be point three. He knew the covenant-breaking consequences and the, and the promised forgiveness. <clears throat> he knew the promise uh, of curses from God. If you look at verse seven, it says right here, <clears throat> we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments nor the statues, statues, the commandments, statues, ordinances. These are all like things that God put out there as boundaries, okay? As, as things to guide us. He's not a tyrant. But we acted corruptly against them because we chose our, what we wanted to do is what Nehemiah is saying. The things which you commanded your servant Moses we, we failed. And then God told them that. Listen to this. God told them in Deuteronomy. This is way back. This is the time of Moses, right? Way back. Thousands, a couple thousand, thousand years before, however, whenever it was. It says in Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 5. So it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I've set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you, 
and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. This is Nehemiah's prayer right here. He's saying it back to them. He said, this is verse, now this is Nehemiah, listen. Remember your word which you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, those of you who have been scattered. Sorry, Elvira, I'm going so fast. We're in the most remote part of the heavens. Elvira's translating. I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I've chosen to cause my name to dwell, which is Jerusalem. Go to De- write this, Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 5. And we also learn from our introduction that the very last chapter in the book of Chronicles 2 talks about what? The land had not enjoyed its Sabbaths. The people of Israel stopped resting the land every seven years. They just, ah, we'll forget about that commandment. And so what did God do? For every time you, 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 you miss that, I am going to put you equivalent into captivity. So that 70 years for all the years that they missed the Sabbath was how long they went into exile. And the land enjoyed its Sabbath all the days of its desolation. It kept Sabbath until 70 years are complete. It's almost a we. it's like a sort of a creepy, you know, it's like, and you know, and all the days of its desolation, how great are they? That's the way the Lord is saying it here. Because to God, this is important. Why? Because the Sabbath is the ultimate picture of, our, of the coming rest in Jesus when he is to come. And remember the Sabbath, remember uh, Jeremiah said that there was going to be 70 years of exile. And there was. But in Daniel, we find out that it's 70 times 7, which is 490 years which is a jubilee of jubilees. We've talked about that in the past. So this Sabbath and 70 years and 490, or that does it, that's super important to God. So you didn't rest the land and pave the way for that which is to come? Okay, go into exile. And that's what God did. They also <clears throat> committed atrocities, by sacrificing their children to the gods that were around them, prostituting themselves with other nations, going to other nations before they're going to God for help. And this was the curse that God gave them. And this is where we are sometimes in our life with our covenant with God. We feel like we're in that that exile. God has forgotten about me. But remember, the covenant God, not only does he... But not only will he discipline you like a child, but he will also deliver you. If they confess their iniquity, Leviticus 26, 40, and the iniquity of their forefathers, that's what Nehemiah just did, in their unfaithfulness what they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham as well. These are all the same covenant, and I will remember the land. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them. When you're in the land of your enemies, God will not reject you. 
So how is this covenant ultimately received? How is this covenant ultimately achieved, I should say? How is it ultimately fulfilled, renewed? It's renewed by Christ. By God, the Father, through Jesus Christ. This is when the ultimate exile was, would be completely over. The reigning king could now take his position as light of the world, as Israel was supposed to be. And now the gospel and that message of Jesus and who he is and what he did and God's righteousness of going into the, um, to the umpteenth detail of what he said he was going to do, it all came into fulfillment in Jesus Christ that he would come back. And now I believe Nehemiah knew this because in, in uh, Malachi, they knew each other. Malachi was preaching at the same time that Nehemiah was building the wall. Listen to what he says. Behold, in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and I will clear the way before me. And he will clear the way before me. And the Lord, listen, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. And so this is, a, this is Nehemiah looking at this going, man, there's something big going to happen. The Lord is going to come to his temple. Well, we need to have it built fully. We need to have it populated. We need to fix it, make it ready. We need to build the walls. Now, we should have this same passion to go out and build for the kingdom of God, which is the new temple. Jesus is the new temple. We are pizzas and parts of that building. And that's this ultimate fulfillment. So the only way you can enter this covenant relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. What is your part? Faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Stop, don't stop trying to check boxes. If you're confused in your walk right now, and you're like all trying to you know, put all the pieces together about what God has for your life, where you should be in your life, what you should be doing, why you can't overcome this sin and other sins where or you've, you've, you've dealt with, but now this and that, you've got to go to one person. Don't start going to different churches and videos and doing all that stuff. You go right to Jesus Christ and you come to him because he is the ultimate fulfiller of this covenant. So just to summarize with you, Nehemiah knew the covenant theme. We have to start seeing this throughout all scripture. That's why I'm so excited to go through these Old Testament books so I can lay this out. I hope you got the timeline so that it can help you do that. He knew the covenant language, which was prayer. He knew that covenant breaking was going to have dire consequences, which it did, but also there was promised forgiveness. Best of all, he knew covenant faithfulness. Nehemiah was faithful to his calling to restore the place where the people could be ultimately, as we're going to see towards the end, faithful to that covenant again. Now, we are inviting people into this covenant as Christians to join in this kingdom-building mission like Nehemiah is doing. We're coming, come on, let's go build the walls. Let's be saved from our sin. Let's be saved from our bondage. And let's go and be a partner with Christ and build for his kingdom. And you may say, well, that's great. Well, we mentioned today is Palm Sunday, Matthew 21, 1 to 11. Jesus comes in, riding on the donkey, laying down palm branches. 
And that's like right now we're like, yes, let's do that. Let's lay down the branches. Jesus is coming. He is our king. We are building for his kingdom. But the key is, is what are you going to do Friday? What are you going to yell out? Crucify him? You would. I would. You see, we have to give up and crucify ourselves. We have to come to Jesus Christ for what he did. We're going to celebrate next week. Good Friday. We're going to celebrate Easter, the resurrection and all that. But it's all absolutely nothing. It means nothing. It's a, you can't do anything to please God in your flesh. Nothing. What I mean in your flesh, like in your own self, like God isn't going, Ooh, look, they're going to church Easter. All right. All right. I got my eye on you. That's not what he's doing. He wants to know you. He wants you to know him. And then out of an expression of his love, do all those other things. And as Kevin just said, amen. Thank you for that. Let's pray. Father, we, we come before you, Lord, and we are so thankful that you are a covenant God. We are so thankful that you assure us that nothing can break that covenant. Lord, that you have sent your son to, to make sure that would never happen because of the effectiveness and the sufficiency of his blood to save every single one that comes to him and draws near to him. Lord, I pray there's anyone here now that they would come draw close to you. If they're not drawn close to you, if they don't know you, if they're struggling, Lord, may they run and embrace you like Nehemiah did, Lord. May he go down on their knees and fast and pray and seek you out, Lord. And Lord, I'm so thankful that I have the the confidence and, and the assurance to say that you will save them. And I thank you for that. Thank you for saving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's stand together and uh, then we'll have a couple announcements.